This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and Mr. Taylor, whose writings in the industry you can regularly read over on The Wrap, and whose musings on the Mission Impossible movies you can listen to on Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. Anyway, Drew and I are recording this week's show on Sunday, July 24th. And to be specific, we I've started recording at 8 p.m. East Coast time, 5 p.m. West Coast time, which means that the 2023 edition of Comic-Con International has just officially come to a close. Security guards are, are now beginning to sweep guests out of the convention center, which is going to take a while. That building is 2.6 million square feet. And you were there Thursday, right? Yeah, yeah. I made a little cameo appearance, you know, just long enough to host a Hall H panel that was full of lovely, passionate Ninja Turtles fans. Um, yeah, it was a great it was a great panel. It was really, really fun. You had the director, Jeff Rowe, there as well as Turtles creator, Kevin Eastman. Yeah, it was really it was really a trip because I I am right at the right age to have been mm-hmm. infatuated with Ninja Turtles as a child. Mm-hmm. The original kind of run of the comics and the animated series and the, the live action movie. So, you know, getting to, to talk to somebody who meant so much to me as a child and to tell that person how much they meant to me uh, was really amazing. And he was just so gracious and kind. And, uh, you know, I was asking him what it was like working with Jim Henson. And he said, mm-hmm. oh, he was amazing. And Brian uh, shot second unit, which I don't think I knew on the first oh, movie. Okay. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. just what a what a guy. You know, the future and the past of Ninja Turtles coming together on the the big stage at Hall H was just a lot of fun. They let you show like a 20-minute continuous chunk of the movie? Yeah. Oh yeah. And people went absolutely nuts for it. Mm-hmm. The movie is so good. I know I've been saying this for weeks, Jim, but the mm-hmm. movie really is that good and I just cannot wait for people to finally see it on August 2nd. Just to bring up our, our tiny little claim to fame, because again, remember Kevin, you know, when he first worked on Ninja Turtles, was up here in New Hampshire. And it turns out the city of Dover, New Hampshire, is in the process of finaling a commemorative manhole cover. <laughs> but evidently, uh, Kevin has consulted on it. It's it, They're putting it as close as possible to where he was living when he was originally designing uh, sadly, that building's been pulled down. But again, it says a lot about New Hampshire that the city of Dover is hoping for a, a lot of that sweet, sweet Ninja Turtle tourism money. I think he still he still lives. I think in um, in Amherst or Northampton, so not oh, too wow. far away from you. Okay. Well, when they do the actual dedication ceremony, hopefully we're there. Maybe we can bring him on the show. So, did they fill all of Hall Age? I mean, it was Thursday morning. It was kind of early. And you were the one big studio presentation that actually made it out of the gate this year, right? Yeah, I mean, from my vantage point, Jim, being incredibly nervous on a stage in front of mm-hmm. 
that mm-hmm. that many people. It looked pretty full to me. So well, yeah, it okay. was it was full. They had a they gave out like a commemorative poster, mm-hmm. and uh, there was just a lot of turtles activity. There was a uh, a turtles van that was driving around giving people slices of uh, Pizza Aww. Hut pizza um, <laughs> and all sorts of stuff. It was just a lot of fun, and um, it was nice to just be there for a little bit and to then go home very quickly. Well, that, that was that, another that, that, that was another good part. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true Comic Con veteran. Yes. Um, I, speaking of Paramount and other animation related news, uh, we found out at the Sears uh, San Diego Comic Con that season four of Star Trek Lower Decks will officially get underway on Thursday, September 7th, with two episodes back to back. Did you see they had the crossover episode? For Strange New Worlds and Lower Decks, that you got to applaud Paramount for its A game when it comes to this year's San Diego Comic Con. Because not only did they show that episode in total at the con, they also bumped up the release date uh, on Paramount Plus by what, a full week? Yeah, I think the the last episode came out on the twentieth, and this one was this one dropped on the twenty second. So there you go. Yeah. There we yeah. go. So the folks at home, you know, which again is very rare. You know, normally at Comic Con, it's like you need to be in the room to enjoy this stuff. So the fact that they they did that for the Paramount Plus subscribers, and then I was fascinated by. The news, because everybody, you know, that there's always been this talk of, you know, well, you know, Star Trek is kind of past its prime and yada, yada, yada. But did you see when they did, they announced that they were giving away the poster for the Subspace Rhapsody, the musical episode of Strange New World that, that's coming on in the coming week of thereabouts, uh, Thursday, August 3rd. But jump to the show floor in San Diego and so many people mobbed the Paramount booth that the fire marshal shut them down for a time? No, I did not see that. I thought things yeah. were getting hairy at the uh, the Mattel booth with all the Ninja Turtle stuff, but I did not see that they actually had to shut down the booth uh, when they yeah. wanted to get that poster. Yeah, I, I kind of enjoyed that. As somebody who's a lifelong fan of this, it, it kind of did my heart good to see, you know, there's too many people here. you got to shut it down. It's like, yay! All right, uh, beyond that, other San Diego Comic-Con-related uh, news, one of the things that got previewed there and then immediately showed up online was the theme song video for the Tiny Toons Luniversity. That debuted 1992, right? So you would have been familiar with the original. Oh, yeah. I would rush home from school to mm-hmm, watch Tiny mm-hmm. Toons. So what did we think of the update? Everything I've seen so far about this new Tiny Toons is very encouraging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought the theme song was great. What did, what did you think, Jim? I have to admit, I appreciated that there were real college jokes in there. I mean, just to the effect of that we paid the out-of-state rate and making jokes about tuition and that sort of thing. So it's like, okay, cool. You're going that right. But again, the Bruce Brotner original song, it's just that Matthew Jazzen stepped in and sort of expanded and updated the original lyrics. So I... I I love that they still have the, the our teaching staff is getting laughs since 1933, which is, you know, animation historian I, I approve of. But yeah, that looks like fun. And that's debuting sometime this fall. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I have my diploma somewhere, Jim, already from, oh! from uh, <laughs> Tiny Toons oh. University. So hopefully Man. they'll still, they'll still uh, enroll me uh, later okay. this year. 
cool, cool, cool. All right, folks, uh, we will have more animation-related news in a moment. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. And by the way, fine-tuning has a new sponsor. Previously, a sponsor had been Storybook Destinations, which, you know, helped keep the lights on with this podcast. And I'd like to just take a moment here to thank Tammy Whiting and the talented team over at Storybook Destinations for sponsoring fine-tuning. In fact, they, they were the ones who uh, coordinated a live event that uh, Drew and I did down in Orlando a couple of years back. Well, the only thing you can count on life is change. And we now have a new sponsor, which is Touring Plan's own travel agency, uh, which can help you book your very next trip. Uh, plus, toss in a, a Touring Plan subscription for free. So please check them out at touringplans.com backslash travel. The other big news, I guess, Drew, is that as of this week, it's officially pencils down over at Disney, at least as far as Wish, uh, their very next feature-length production, that Chris Buck and Fawn Vera Sun Thorn film is due to arrive in theaters on November 22nd of this year. But as Hiram Osmond noted on Twitter early this week, animation has been completed. In fact, he proved that by showing a close-up image of the back and the front of the crew coin. Have you ever seen these before? I know that John Favreau mm -hmm. gives out coins when mm -hmm. his productions are done, but it's kind of a, a military-based tradition, right? It is. It is. But given what a battle uh, sometimes getting an animated feature out the door can be, it does speak a lot to the fact, here, we survived this. Here's your coin. I mean, we, we should say, Jim, just because animation is done, the movie is not done. We have oh, lighting. God, we no. have special no, effects. No, no, no. We I, have... I, I am so glad you brought that up because, yes, they and they only have 17 weeks and change at this point. And God help them if somebody decides you got to change dialogue at this point because that ain't happening. No, uh, no. This script is locked, folks, and, and so is the, the soundtrack. But beyond that, I remember when you were in Annecy last month, you, you actually got to see a good chunk of footage. What? Almost 25 minutes of migration, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. I thought it was really, really terrific. I think it's it's shaping up to be the best illumination project yet, if I could be so bold. Okay, okay. Well, uh, you know, face it, the earlier teaser trailer definitely left us wanting more, but the trailer that just dropped this past week honestly gives you a much better sense of the shape, the style, and the ambition of this thing. I mean, that, that scene where they were flying over... Fog enshrouded uh, New York City. It's like, holy cow. Isn't that so cool? I, yeah, they showed us some stuff from that, and I was like, wow. This, mm -hmm. this movie is going to be different. It is not mm -hmm. going to be an endless parade of minions running around or anything like that. <laughs> it's got some real stakes and some real emotion, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the rest of it. And speaking of Illuminations-related stuff, uh, you've got to be following the, the news in relation to the... The Villain Con uh, attraction that just opened, uh, well, I mean, it's still in soft opening, technically, at Universal Studios uh, Florida. A lot of people were grousing about it's not an e-ticket. And it's like, well, no, not everything is, in fact, an e-ticket. But on the other hand, the technology and that sort of thing seems to impress. What have you heard? Yeah, I mean, I've seen... I've seen some sort of mixed reviews, um, mm -hmm. but I, I'm just really excited that it's a new technology 
It's mm-hmm. a new kind of ride system. Yep. I'm not sure how I would feel if I waited in line for an hour for something that, and then I just had to stand stand in another line essentially through the attraction. But yeah. I really love what they did with that whole area. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, it's always sort of weird that Universal Orlando has that, like their, their kind of main street was supposed to be that street off to the right with, yep. that had T2 and... Mm-hmm. So that kind of thoroughfare ended up being kind of the main street. So I'm I'm glad that there's some more theming over there. And I, everything about the the cafe looks really cute and all the kind mm-hmm. of dioramas and stuff. I don't know why they didn't make anything move, but... The, it's so interesting you bring that up because, remember, this was formerly known as Production Central. And now I guess it's Minions Land. You know, the very thing, very first thing you encounter as you come through the entrance of Universal Studios Florida. But they are already putting in stanchions and, and marquees and the like getting ready for this year's Halloween Horror Nights, which, again, is a huge earner for this park and so that to me is the fascinating part because production center used to be sort of the throat for that event in fact they would do sort of a tease there of you know all of the different mazes you know you passed under an arch in fact that's where they used to hide little boo the pumpkin so yeah the the fact that now this has a minion theme and it's still going to need to be the throat for halloween horror night that's going to be interesting and never mind the other issue of the kid zone, the Woody Woodpecker kid zone that got pulled down. And now, just in the past week, we saw the first pieces of art supporting that that's now going to become a DreamWorks animation area. I mean, face it, we already knew that. It was a a really poorly held secret. But yeah, it's kind of interesting to watch Universal Parks uh, lean in as heavily as they are to their own IPs now and creating these two specific areas in the park, one that celebrates illumination, one that celebrates DreamWorks. Did you see the, did you study the concept art for the DreamWorks land? Like it was the Zapruder film and notice that the, the Fievel coaster is going to be like a trolls coaster. <laughs> well, as Len said on, on our last show, if, if they don't call it the troller coaster, you know, it's somebody. At, you oh, know, that's at, good. No, no, that's it exactly. I mean, that's low-hanging fruit. That has to be the troller coaster. But I guess that's not opening to 2024, though, so we'll, we'll have more information later. And speaking of more information, following up on something that Drew mentioned on the last show about what's powering Elemental continuing to do surprisingly well at the box office is how well this film is doing in Korea. And... As of right now, Pixar's Elementor is the ninth best-selling animated film in Korea ever. And when you consider that number one and number two are Frozen 2 and Frozen 1, this is kind of interesting company that they're stepping into. But if you, you read the press accounts, this country is taking such pride in the story that Peter Somme, you know, tried to tell with this and, and is really sort of embracing how Korean the film is. When this went into development, you know, four and five years ago, did you hear anything to the effect of this is really more of a story about immigration rather than a love story between fire and water? I didn't realize that until the long lead day when they showed us the first 20 minutes. And I was like, oh, this is what the movie's about. Yeah. 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 And 
I reached out to some folks at, at Disney and Pixar and asked, had there been any discussions about this when they were looking to decide how to promote this film? And, you know, it's just like, this isn't exactly the best time in American history to be to be playing a film as something that celebrates immigration. That given the currently polarized political environment, it just felt like maybe we just focus on the love story and that let people who see the movie discover this. But for me, I, now I want to see the ads for overseas. I want to see the posters for overseas to see how they adjusted the campaign. And more to the point, who at Pixar decided, you know, in Korea, let's really play up that this is the story of Peter's parents or our, our lead animator is actually also Korean. I mean, that, that that's what makes the movie powerful is that immigration story, I think. Oh, yeah. I think that's the secret to its success. So I'm so happy that, that they were allowed to talk about it and that they have embraced it like they have because that really is the, the heart of the movie and what makes it so special. Now, mind you, this is before we added the numbers for Barbie and, and Oppenheimer. But earlier this weekend, Elemental was the 13th highest grossing film in the States for the 2023. It had $137 million at the box office, which Barbie did in one weekend, right? <laughs> and then yes. o- o- overseas, uh, 219. So worldwide total of 356 million and what's kind of interesting is the folks at Pixar are pointing to the fact that with the exception of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem there isn't a whole lot of a kid related product out there and I would argue that Mutant Mayhem is going to have a wider appeal than just kids but uh, the folks at Pixar are like you know we think we're still going to do business uh, going into the summer, and that a $400 million worldwide gross is is not out of the question. So, which I'm happy for Peter. I, you know, I'm, I'm happy that this is the story we get to tell about Elemental rather than the one from back in June. But speaking of big, yeah. have you seen this 13-foot-tall animated Jack Skellington that Home Depot was selling for Halloween this year? Yeah, I had heard they had already sold out of them, but I love it. I, if I had a yard, Jim, that would be... Well, there we go. There we go. Uh, but if you can find one, folks, uh, they're going to $399 each. If you still need a little more Jack Skellington in your life, I want to remind folks that Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas Visual Companion, which is written by Dave Bossert, will be arriving at your local bookstore or you can pre-order at Amazon on September 26th. And Dave has been working on this for almost four and five years now and has managed to dig up a bunch of unreleased pieces of concept art and photography. And he was taking great pride when I was talking earlier with him about this book, about he had been collecting tattoo art of people who, you know, that's how much they love Nightmare, that, that they had they'd put it on their body. And he said, what was startling is how much good tattoo art there was out there. So I guess we'll, we'll see that again in a couple of months. Also, for those of you who collected his previous books, I want to point out that Dave also has an Indiegogo thing going right now for a book about the House of the Future at Disneyland. That, and and I, I, what's interesting, I think both of these books are coming out this fall. So if you're looking to add to your library, you know, put those on your list there. 
Did you see that they're they're also putting out a, a Nightmare Before Christmas 4K disc? Are they really? Yeah. Wow. Everything's coming up, Nightmare. There we go. Yeah. There we go. All right. I and uh, before we close out the news here, folks, wanted to follow up on the boy and the heron. And I guess by the way, that's how we're now supposed to talk about it stateside. You know that it's not. How do you live? It's going to open here in theaters as Boy and the Heron. So that's how we're supposed to talk about it. But Hayao Miyazaki's latest and perhaps last did huge box offices as far as Studio Ghibli is concerned. It made $13.2 million over its opening weekend. And that's actually better than their previous record breaker, which was Howl's Moving Castle. Have you heard anything else about this this coming stateside other than award season, right? Yeah, I, when I hear awards season, mm-hmm. I I assume early December. I have not confirmed that with anyone, but that that's my guess is that okay. early December okay. is when All we'll right. see it. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have to to lean on the nice folks at G Kids to see if you know they they can give us an early heads up about this arriving, but. I'm going to be fascinated to see what they do in regard to, given the, the the somewhat darker, more ambitious nature of this thing, it might make sense to go see both the uh, subtitled as well as the English dub version. Though, for me, the gold standard for the English dub still is the, what, the 2003 redo of Castle in the Sky. Again, just Cloris Leachman as mom. And then, what, Andy Dick and Mandy Patinkin as as her kids. That was wonderful fun. I'm always partial to the Porco Rosso dub with Michael Keaton. He, that was pretty Porco cool. Rosso. Yeah. And the Howl movie Castle, Billy Crystal is the, the sentient talking fire. I mean, they do some nice stuff there. But again, that was... Largely Pete Doctor riding herd on those, right? Or yeah, I mean, all I think all the all the Pixar guys kind of helped out. I know that you know Lee did a lot of stuff for those, and mm-hmm. it was kind of a group effort. Absolutely. But they're yeah, they're all really really great. And I mean, you know, have you ever watched the Princess Mononoke dub? It was written by Neil Gaiman, which is just so cool. That's right. Yeah, That's right. different times, Jim. Different times. D- Different times. All right. And and speaking of Pixar-related stuff, when we get back, folks, uh, we're going to talk about the short that changed animation, well, forever, uh, and who at Pixar had a hand in that. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader the station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 Central on ABC and stream on Hulu. 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As we get started here, I want to remind you that Drew and I are recording the show on Sunday, July 23rd. It'll get posted online two days later on the 25th. So 39 years ago today, CG back in, in the early 80s was a lot of chrome, a lot of flying cameras, uh, a lot of geometric shapes, not a lot of characters. Tableaus falling over, things there like that. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. But that changed. In fact, it was the folks at SIGREF in Minneapolis who got to see the film that changed it all, and that was The Adventures of Andre and Wally B., which was produced by the graphics group at Lucasfilm. I mean, the further on down the line would become Pixar. But to give you some idea of how close this came to, to not happening, the, even the folks in Minneapolis didn't get the completed film. Uh, they, I guess there were two shots in the version that was screened there that weren't completed, about six seconds worth of animation. And so it was sort of Wally and the bee done in wireframe, some pencil test stuff and that sort of thing on top of completed backgrounds. But even so, it caused a sensation because this film, which, by the way, was not directed by John Lasseter because evidently they weren't allowed to have a director. I want to say, what was the title? Oh, Interface Designer. That was how John was hired because John only got hired to direct, you know, The Adventures of Andre and Wally B because he'd been fired by Disney. And in fact, you wrote about this at one point, didn't you, Drew? Or about him being fired? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean well, I mean, what it was was he hmm. was working on a very um, ambitious CG, mm-hmm. li- uh, traditionally animated version of where the wild things are, right? Um, and he was sort of like, you know, it'll cost half half the money and ha- it'll be half the time. And mm-hmm. I don't think anybody really believed him. And well, th- see, now, th- this is the way it, it was explained to me. And you're right. The first project that he you know, was trying to get out the door was Where the Wild Things Are, which is, of course, based on the classic Maurice Sandek book. And Maurice Sandek was a huge Disney fan. So... He was thrilled when when Disney signed, uh, you know, uh, acquired the film rights to his kids' book. And you can go online and view, what, it's a 30-second test that he and also at that point starting out his career at Disney, Glenn Keane did. Yep. And Glenn did the hand-drawn animation that was on top of the CG backgrounds that that Lasseter put together, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and to your point, a lot of a lot of flying camera moves. Uh, it in this it thing. was, it was, but the notion was that if we marry this to CG, that makes it different. Also, John, who evidently fell in love with CG, 
after he he slipped into the trailers that were on the lot there that were they were doing a lot of the Tron work in uh, you know the, the the light cycle stuff and that sort of thing. John was so convinced this was going to be the future of the company that he also persuaded Disney to acquire the film rights to the Brave Little Toaster, the book. Yep. And they've done the test for where the wild things are. And Disney is using this. In fact, there's that famous showcase that they did. I think it's called the Disney Studio Showcase that ran on the Disney Channel. And in the same thing where they show the where the wild things are test, they also show that early, early footage that was done for the non-Robert Zemeckis version of, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yes, they do. Yeah. And, and, and this is the version where, where Jessica is the villain of the project. And they were walking these things out to the public. In fact, isn't that also the one that has just a taste of Tim Burton's Hansel and Gretel in it, too? Yeah, that actually might have... I mean, it's the same show, too, mm. where they they showed stuff from Black Cauldron that never ended up in the movie, either. Oh, God, that's right. Wasn't that the, the... Sandy Duncan or someone was in it? Yes, okay. You know, yeah, I mean, there's... Not to get completely <laughs> off track, but yeah. Uh, well, no, yeah. no, no. In fact, it's so, thank you for bringing up Black Cauldron, because ultimately, that's what sank both the Brave Little Toaster and Where the Wild Things Are at Disney. You know, at this point, Black Cauldron is, what, 10 years into production and millions upon millions of dollars over budget, and it's in no shape to be released. And so here comes John Lasseter through the door with, okay, so we'll start off by doing Where the Wild Things Are and get everybody excited about Disney working in CG. And then we'll follow that up with, you know, a feature-length project, The Brave Little Toaster. And they had done that famous animation test, which I've been chasing for years the one where it's the four characters, uh, Toaster, Lampy, Blanket, and the, the vacuum in a shopping cart zooming down the highway. And the little sweet Easter egg in, in the test is, if you're looking closely in the chrome of the toaster, you can see a reflection of the camera truck rolling past them. It's a funny idea. But that's what he took to Ron Miller to show him what they could do. And then John sort of laid it out to Ron how much it was first going to cost to make the Where the Wild Things Are sort of featurette. And then uh, the full-length feature of Brave Little Toaster. And and evidently, Miller had been told exactly what, what you were talking about. It was going to be half the cost. And John told you know, Ron Miller a number that was not anything near what he'd been previously told. And it's like, oh, we can't afford that. No, we're not doing this. And John went back to his office depressed. And then it was Ed Hansen, right? The head of the animation department who had been gunning for John for months because he felt like John kept meeting with people above Ed's pay grade and getting things going. And as soon as he found out this project was canceled, he said, well, your project's canceled and your employment at Disney is now terminated. So with that, John, who had dreamed his entire life of, of working at Disney and it had been there since 79 and, and done his time on Mickey's Christmas Carol and that sort of thing, was just shocked that, you know, here it was late 82, early 83, 
and that he's being let go. So he he doesn't even tell Nancy. And he doesn't pack up his office, not yet, but he had already, I guess, been credentialed as Disney's rep to a computer conference that was being held on board the Queen Mary in November of 1983. And, you know, he was there attending panels and, and that sort of thing. And who else is in the room but Ed Catmull? And Ed knew that John was working on a couple of CG things for Disney. So it, at a break, goes over to talk with him. And John, you know, just says, no, the Brave Little Toaster isn't moving forward. Neither is where the wild things are. And I guess the very next break, Ed goes out and gets on the phone to Alvy Ray Smith, who I, I want to say at that point was in charge of the graphics group at at Lucasfilm and explains again, he's available and Alvy tells Ed go offer him a job now and by December of that same year he John's up in the Bay Area again as a technical consultant te- technical consultant yes and you know he's the one who well first of all persuades them because the original title for this project in fact the premise John was a, God, that's a loser. It was called My Breakfast with Andre. And it was the notion of, you know, somebody waking up in their house and there was an android in the house and they'd come to breakfast. And it's John who, no, 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 no. We want to do really real animated characters. So, you know, we need to do things like motion blur and we need to have teardrop-shaped characters that look warm and fuzzy and that's what happened. I mean, mind you, again, as we mentioned, it, it was the unfinished version of Andre and Wally B that debuted at SIGGRAPH in Minneapolis. But just a few weeks later, the finished version debuted at the Toronto International Animation Festival, and and the world changed. I mean, mind you, it took a couple of other shorts from the graphics group before Disney laid down its offer for Pixar to come do a feature film. But do you have a, a favorite of the bunch there, or what do you like from the, the early, early Pixar stuff? Well, I, I always thought Knickknack was such a hoot, and oh. I never got to see it in 3D, but uh, yeah, I mean, I remember sending away, this was even before before Toy Story, but they would send you a kind of like highlight reel of all the shorts if you sent away to Pixar. I mean, I'm sure this was actually a money order type thing this is how old this was but so i as a kid little kid i would i i was keenly interested in pixar even before toy story and rewatched that that tape of all the um short Mm -hmm. films just over and over again and i i love knickknack i love how weird red's dream is and how kind of depressing it is yeah Um, yeah if I'm looking at those early ones, I mean, that's impressive, but not necessarily entertaining. I mean, it, for me, what I love about Andre B. and and Knickknack is they kind of lean into a, a Chuck Jones-like sensibility. They're genuinely funny, and they feel like real animation. So when Pixar finally started making movies for Disney, they basically began eating Disney's lunch because the quality of, of what they did, but... I would love to see Pixar kind of return to that sort of broadly crazy animation. Though I I, I don't think we're going to get to see that with Elio. But it's fascinating. That was only 39 years ago. 
and you know what it must have been like to be in that theater to to I mean and it's a it's a really 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 short film and it kind of does that bait and switch thing because remember you have that establishing shot of that crazy detailed forest that you you know the camera moves down into and then only then you uh encounter Andre and Wally B and 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 then even the stuff that's Featuring them, I I think this thing weighs in at, at less than sixty seconds, right? Or... Yeah, I mean it, it's pretty rudimentary if you watch it today, but it's also really, it's still really impressive, and it's amazing, you know, what they were able to accomplish and and how far they came mm-hmm. so quickly. I mean, it, you know, Toy Story was not that long afterwards, and it's no, just such it, a. It, 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 it was not. It was yeah. Not. Forgive me for for changing the topic here, but for me, what's fascinating is if you look at where the Mission Impossible film series started with uh, the De Palma and, you know, where they are today, it's crazy. I mean, there were definitely you know qualities that have carried over throughout the, the whole series, but so many friends who have been to see the film keep talking about, like we saw for months ahead of time, the motorcycle stunt scene but all anyone can talk about that i've chatted with is is the train thing at the end and and how they did that i mean on the um any of the upcoming uh light diffuse official mission impossible podcast are, are you and charles going to talk about that aspect of the project or oh yeah or we're, we're obsessed with the train so we mm-hmm. will be getting into it uh okay. in depth yeah we mm-hmm. we love the train and mm-hmm. it's amazing you should go see it jim you should Go on your cheap, uh, you know, <laughs> Tuesday night. Go see it. You'll have a great time. They've been trying to arrange a, a date night with Nancy to go see it. So hopefully that will, will be fairly soon. It just, it, again, I just barely got caught up with my animation. And now, given our, your strong recommendation, got to get out to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem fairly quickly. But to circle back uh, to the official Mission Impossible podcast, what are you and Charles talking about this week? Oh, I don't even know who's on this week. I'm so I'm so in the weeds. But we have great we have great interviews coming up with a lot of great cast members that we recorded obviously a little while ago, and then a lot of great below the line talent like composer Lauren Balf, editor Eddie Ooh. Hamilton, writer director Christopher McQuarrie. Mm-hmm. It's going to be great. So yeah, just stick in there. All right. Well, uh, definitely check those out, folks. Uh, likewise, we have a couple of podcasts here we'd, we'd love you to, to listen to on, on the Jim Hill Media side. Uh, we, of course, have Disney Dish that I do with Lentesto. We also have Marvelous Disney, which I do with Aaron Adams. Likewise, Aaron has his own outside project over on Patreon, 32nd Street, which shines a spotlight on all things related to Madison Avenue. And speaking of San Diego Comic-Con, I think as we speak, poor Brian Gaughan is probably hauling, well, again, given how well Bill Stout typically does at at Comic-Con, probably not all that many boxes back to the car, but then the poor guy's got to drive all the way back up from San Diego to Los Angeles. But anyway, once Brian gets home and gets rested, we'll do another looking at Lucasfilm and He'll share what he learned Star Wars related while wandering around the San Diego uh, Convention Center. And social media wise, last we talked, you were on threads, you're on Mastodon, still on Twitter, anywhere else? Not Mastodon, I'm on Blue Sky. 
Blue um, sky. I'm, yeah. I stand corrected. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, who cares anymore? They're, they're saying that, that Twitter is becoming X by the end of the day. So who knows if I'll even be on Twitter. But for right now, it's Drew Taylor like a tailored shirt. Mm-hmm. Same thing here, folks. Uh, we are still on Twitter uh, as Jim Hill Media, likewise on Instagram, also on Facebook as Jim Hill Media News. And uh, we're just getting up out of the ground over on Threads, so hopefully get some stuff posted there. And I think for now that's going to do it for this week. On behalf of Mr. Taylor, thanks for listening, and we'll be back with a brand new fine-tuning next week. So till then, take care.